0: Hey, we're in this series called Taste It, right? Where, uh, at the end of January, we gave a a challenge. To, uh, for the next 90 days to read scripture and, uh, triple dog there to, to, uh, sprint through the entire Bible in 90 days. Lots of you are doing that. That's incredibly cool. It's been really fun to hear stories, uh, uh, people talking about how that's impacting their life. Lots of you, though, have, have said, you know what, I can't do the 90 day thing, but, but I'm reading scripture in a way that I never have before. And that's incredibly cool. We're gonna talk more about that today. Maybe you've never read scripture that you're kind of new to the whole process, um, today you're going to get kind of a fresh challenge to, to jump in. As we have done the sprint through Scripture today, we turn a huge page. Um, we're into the New Testament, uh, which is a, a big deal, yeah. Uh, made it through the Minor Prophets, and uh, so to d- today that's that's uh, ultimately where we're going. Um, you know, it's a, it's a common story that happens in our culture a lot. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, they fall in love, they get married, you know, both of them go to work, and when they first get married, they've got like, both of them have good jobs, they've got all kinds of spendable income. So their life looks kind of crazy, right? They're able to travel on the weekends, go wherever, do whatever they want. They're able to go on exotic vacations together. That's a, that's a cool thing. They buy each other incredibly great presents, um, you know, toys for each other, all that kind of stuff. That's cool. Until one day when he comes home from work and they're talking that night and she's holding saltine crackers and has a twinkle in her eye and says, "Um, guess what? We're going to have a baby. And that baby begins to impact their life and lifestyle pretty dramatically, right? That baby is a game changer because all of a sudden, all that money, all that freedom, all that flexibility that they had, it's not that way anymore. And it's a good change to the game, right? It's not a negative one. It's a good one. Um, that baby becomes a game changer in their life. Um, and, and, uh, that's cool for, um, for the Jews. When we started this series, and when you think about kind of where we are as you've come through the, through the minor prophets, uh, in the last several weeks, uh, through the prophets, um, the, the Jews were in a place that they had, uh, they had come to this place in their history where, um, they had this rich heritage that they were incredibly proud of and, and, and incredibly proud that they were God's chosen people, that God had spoken to Moses and Moses had spoken to them and given them the law. And um, and that after that, as they came into the promised land, that there were these judges that spoke for God and spoke to them. And the, and the judges directed them for how to return to God, how to have the right kind of relationship with God. After the judges, there were kings, and the kings stood, in a sense, kind of between them and God. They had the priests that stood between them and God. Um, and then ultimately, when they rejected God and they were taken into captivity, the kings went away, and there were these prophets that continued to challenge them to walk close to God. And then about the time of Malachi, everything went silent. And for 400 years, the Jews didn't hear anything from God. During that time, I think that their perspective as a nation, they were still proud to be Jews, but there was this sense of lostness that came they weren't really a nation in quite the same way that they had been before the kingdom had been divided they'd been taken into captivity by assyria and babylon and while they were back and and while the while they were back in jerusalem and the temple was kind of rebuilt it it was it was just a dim memory of what it once had been when solomon had built that temple they they had the laws that Moses had given them—six hundred and fifteen laws about how to how to interact with God, what to do when they sinned. Uh, that they were to do this and not do this, and, and go through that whole process. Six hundred and fifteen laws, and I and I think as as it approached the first century, that for the Jews they they were kind of like defeated as a nation. They were there. But Rome, uh, Alexander the Great had taken over them. Rome had come in, and Rome was in charge. And they existed, but under the power and authority of Rome. They, they were a defeated bunch. In 19 BC, Herod the Great starts to rebuild the temple, starts a, a process that lasted about 15 years, where he really did kind of a reconstruction of the temple to restore it to its glory, to the glory of Solomon's temple. And he did. Um, but the really significant piece in history came 2,000 years ago when this baby was born in Bethlehem of Judea named Jesus. And that baby that was born became the game changer that changed everything in terms of history. Changed it for the Jews that would believe. Changed it for us, for, for non-Jews as well. Um, that's, that's where we're going today. We're, we're focusing on the game changer Um, aspect, that Jesus changed everything. Um, Understand that everything that we've read up to this point, as we've studied through the scriptures, all the law, all the prophets, everything that was there, it all pointed to a Messiah. And what you find in the gospels is that Jesus was the Messiah who had been promised. Is that right? Are you are you there? You tracking with me? Um, what what I want to do today is just kind of do an overview and and to really kind of give you a, a direct challenge to jump into the gospels and to begin to read the gospels. Uh, um, the gos you know you, most people know the word the gospels, but it's kind of a funny word. What's it What's it mean? Well, the gospels the, the the terminology means good news. The good news of Jesus. The Gospels are the good news of Jesus. There are four books that are in the Gospels in the, in the New Testament: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and they are what they are in reality is biographies of the life of Jesus. They're written by four different guys, four different perspectives, um, and they describe the uh, events in Jesus' life in a way that that lasts down through to us today. Um, sometimes, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, but I thought it made sense to just kind of say it in, in terms of explanation today. Have you ever heard the, the term synoptic Gospels? Have you ever read that? Um, what that means is that there are three of the Gospels that have um, kind of the same view of Jesus, the same perspective. Synoptic means sin, like same, like synonym. You know, synonym is the same sound. Um, same is, no, Same meaning. Thank you. Uh, Hominem is the same sounding. All right. Uh, uh, sin, same. Optic, like in eyes, view, same view, the same view. They, so they share this different, this perspective. John is, uh, has a different perspective. John is not one of the synoptic gospels. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So what I want to do today is just take an overview, look at the gospels so that If you're doing the sprint through, you have some context in terms of what you're reading. And um, maybe if you're not doing the sprint through the Bible, maybe this week will be a week that you can jump in and begin to read the Gospels uh, for one of the first times. the, the gospel writers have four different kind of perspectives. If you've got, if you've got your, uh, your phone, open it up to the Bible app. If you if you want to take a Bible out of the back of the front of the pew, I want to, I want to look at just the beginning of each of the four gospels to, to, uh, to help show the difference in perspective that they have the first gospel the first book of the new testament is the book of matthew matthew was written by one of the 12 disciples of jesus Um, matthew was a tax collector and because he was a tax collector he would have uh, he would have had lots of garbage he would have understood grace in a very clear way the jews hated the tax collectors and in matthew 9 when it describes jesus calling matthew to follow him um, it says that Matthew invited him to his house and Jesus came over and ate dinner. And the, his house was filled with Matthew's friends who were all tax collectors because the Jews hated him. They're all there. And, and the religious leader said, what's Jesus doing with those horrible people? Why would he spend time with them? Matthew understood the grace of God in a, in a clear way, because Jesus had reached out and called him. Um, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. Matthew's a Jew, uh, a tax collector, but a Jew, and he writes to a Jew, Jewish audience. So some of the things that you'll see in the book of Matthew are an emphasis on Jesus being, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament law and the prophets. Um, in the book of Matthew, there are nine different references to the Old Testament that aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Why did he do that? Because he was writing to a Jewish audience. The Jews knew the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles open and you look at Matthew chapter 1, how does it start? What's the first thing that you find in Matthew chapter 1? Genealogy, right? starts listening to all these people that, uh, that begat these other people. And what it does is it establishes the lineage of Jesus as part of of being of the line of David. Because the Messiah was promised that he would come from the line of David. uh, What's that? Oh, I I heard people talking. I thought I said something wrong. Sorry about that. It's okay, Erica. Uh, She's my friend. I I wouldn't put her on the spot. So uh, the Messiah would be the line of David, right? And it establishes that why is that there? Does that matter to us? We look at that and say, who cares who those people are? It was really, really important to the Jews. Matthew wrote to the Jews. Mark's completely different. Um, John Mark is uh, is uh, younger than, than most of the age of the disciples. Um, we read about him in the book of Acts, coming alongside, riding with Paul, being uh, backing out of the journey and separating from Paul. Mark spent most of his adult ministry with Peter, got his source material from the apostle Peter, who was a first-hand witness of Jesus. Mark writes not to a Jewish audience, but to a Gentile, to a Roman audience. Um, he has a different perspective because of who he's writing to. Um, you know, when you look in Mark chapter one, if you go there and look at Mark chapter one, how does the book of Mark start? Anybody there? Somebody, quick, look to Mark chapter 1. How's Mark's chart start? Starts with John the Baptist, right? Doesn't mention anything about his birth, anything about his genealogy. Why? Because that didn't matter to the Gentiles. It didn't matter to the Romans. They had heard about John the Baptist, so he starts right with John the Baptist. And the thing about the book of Mark that I love is that the book of Mark is a book of action, As you read through the book of Mark, it's like event, 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 event. Stuff that happens, that describes, because that made sense to the Roman mind. It was all about, okay, who is this Jesus? What has he done? Why is it significant? Um, The material that John Mark got, because he wasn't an eyewitness, would have come from Peter. He traveled with Peter. (coughs) Excuse me. He would have heard Peter preach over and over again. He would have heard Peter teach. And he would have heard the stories of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. That's, that's the source of uh, John Mark. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Mark, because his material came from Peter, it's not, necessi- not necessarily in sequential order. Um, so it's, it, Mark. when you read Mark, it's not a, it's not a firm sense of um, you know, uh, June follows May. July follows uh, June, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's a, col- a collection of, of Jesus' ministry. Luke is a different story than Matthew or Mark. Luke was not even a Jew, he was a Greek. Um, and so Luke writes with a, a completely different perspective. Why did Luke write his gospel? Because he had this guy named Theophilus that was probably his patron, which meant that he supported him so that Luke could be an investigative reporter and study to to learn about Jesus. So when you read, when if if you've got your scriptures open, and you look at Luke chapter 1, the first four verses... Luke says, hey, here's why I'm writing. I'm writing to make sure that we've got all the details right about Jesus. I'm writing to you, Theophilus, most noble Theophilus, uh, the, the, the guy who's commissioned him to write this out uh, and, to te- and to say, I'm, I'm doing all my homework. I'm, I'm having the conversations. I'm looking at all the information that's available to write this biography of Jesus. Um, Luke, interestingly enough, is a a physician. Uh, He's described later in the New Testament as as a physician. And his writing style, um, we don't see it in English, but in Greek, um, Luke is probably the most educated of all the New Testament writers in terms of Greek. So he writes in, in, um, in the Greek language most closely related to classical Greek. The rest of Greek, the, the rest of the New Testament, uh, what Paul, a lot of the Pauline writings are written in what's called Koine Greek, which is the, like the common language of all the people who spoke Greek. Uh, Luke's writing is much more towards classical Greek. He's writing to uh, to a noble. Um, Roman named Theophilus, a guy who's well-educated. And it's interesting to me, incredibly interesting to me, that in the midst of the gospel of Luke, there's a special emphasis, not on the rich and powerful, but on the poor and downtrodden. When you read through the book of Luke, you'll see that, that um, Luke pays special attention to how Jesus interacted with women, with poor people, with people who were hurting, and with Gentiles in a way that the other writers don't. Why did he do that? Because I think that, that he knew that his audience needed to, uh, to understand that Jesus didn't come for the rich and powerful. He came for the poor and for the downtrodden. downtrodden. Now, Luke writes about specifics, lots and lots of specifics. And so um, when we think about the Christmas story, the, where we quote the Christmas story from, it's almost all from Luke chapter 2. This extended passage, passage that describes the details of Jesus' birth written because he was a doctor. John is a completely different kind of perspective. So uh, Matthew's writing to a, to a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to a Greek, to a Gentile audience. Um, Luke is writing for Theophilus, for, the, for this uh, rich Roman kind of guy. And John has a completely different perspective when you look at again at that first chapter of John. What's, how does John 1 start? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Uh, John takes a completely different perspective of this big picture to say, this is how all the pieces fit together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all probably written within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. 20 or 30 years, a a relatively short period of time because it was uh, written... Eyewitnesses. John is the is the last living of the apostles of the of the twelve disciples of Jesus, and he probably wrote about fifty, but somewhere between fifty and sixty years, the book of John was written, and it was written to try and fill in the gaps um, for the things that the other biographers hadn't told about. John spends four chapters of his book for uh, a significant portion, almost a quarter of of his biography of Jesus on what Jesus experienced and what Jesus said on the night of the Passover before he, was, uh, before he was betrayed and crucified. Huge, huge section of scripture on one night, the interaction of Jesus. John fills in the blanks. John, John says exactly why he's writing um, in John chapter 20. He says, I'm writing so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, here's the purpose of my biography. It's not just so that you know about Jesus, but so that Jesus will transform your life, so that you can experience what Jesus came for. Um, The Gospels give this picture of who Jesus is. And when you begin to read through those Gospels and begin to internalize that, you understand a couple of truths that that are just uh, very powerful. The the first is this, that Jesus understood that he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. There was no doubt in Jesus' mind that that all that the law had been given for, all that the prophets had prophesied about, it was fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 5, when Jesus is... uh, preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus understood that he came to fulfill everything that had been written in the Old Testament the law that God had given Moses, the prophecies that God had given the, the, what we call the major and minor prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. What did Jesus fulfill? That he was the perfect sacrificial lamb. The law had created this system that when you sinned, you had to make sacrifice and the animal had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. Jesus came so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us when he was crucified. Jesus understood that he came to atone for our sin, that the prophets in particular had talked about the need for atonement, for, for stuff to be made right with God. And Jesus understood that when he went to the cross, he took our sin on himself. Atonement occurred when he took our punishment on himself. Uh, Jesus understood that, that he was coming to fulfill what was there in Genesis chapter three. If you think all the way back to when we started this series, in Genesis three, when Adam and Eve sin and God talks to him afterwards and gives a curse and says, you know, Adam, the, the ground's gonna, uh, it's gonna fight you when, when you, plant to to bring stuff up because of your sin. Women, uh, you're going to have this, this curse that occurs that happens in childbirth. And he says to the serpent, you know what? You're going to bite man's heel, but man is going to step and crush on your head. And Jesus understood that that was talking about him, that Jesus was going to change the power of Satan in a dramatic fashion. Uh, At the end of Jesus' life, after he'd been crucified and after, um, after he had been resurrected, there's an there's a incredibly cool account that happens in Luke 24. There are these two guys in Jerusalem that are walking to this town about six miles away, this town named Emmaus. And these guys are walking, and Jesus walks up to them. And I think Jesus probably had kind of a twinkle in his eye, but probably had his head down as he talks to these guys because they're talking about Jesus' crucifixion and what had happened. And they thought he was the Messiah, but he had died. And now there are people talking about an empty grave. They just really don't know what's going on at all. And and Jesus comes up to him and says, what are you talking about? And, the, and these two guys who are walking together say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that didn't watch the game last night? Uh, you know, uh, that, 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 that's really the conversation. He's, are you the only one that don't know what's going on? And so they begin to talk to him about, about the stuff that has, had, had happened with this guy that they thought was Messiah. Ultimately, Jesus sits down with him. They see the, they, they, they understand and know who he is. And, uh, this is, this is, uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to, to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I just think that that verse is such a cool verse because Jesus sits down and says to them, no, 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 don't you understand what Moses talked about, what the prophets talked about? That was me. That was my death. That was my resurrection. Uh, And and it uh, turns the, the conversation on its head. Jesus understood his identity. He understood who he was. He understood why he had come. The prophets explained it, but Jesus spelled it out as well. In Luke chapter 4, it describes Jesus early in his ministry. It says that he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that we read from just a few weeks ago, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus knew exactly why he was here on earth. It was to reach out and to embrace the poor and the hurting and the suffering. He he understood that he was there to, to do God's will on earth. Jesus, when you read the Gospels this week, just look at the compassion that Jesus had on broken people, on hurting people, on on people who were burdened by the law, who live their life trying trying to live out completing those 615 laws. Jesus had compassion on people who were suffering from illness, suffering from pain. Luke 19, Jesus says about himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus knew exactly why he was here. It was to rescue us. He did that through the crucifixion and resurrection. You know, when when you read through the gospels, one of the things that that you'll begin to see and understand when you when you take a step back and look is that the crucifixion is the pivotal moment in man's history. Um, when you think about the the history of all mankind, the resurrection is the pivotal moment in that. It changed everything. Um, You need to personally read about Jesus' death on the cross. I want to challenge you to do that this week. Uh, um, Everybody's minds are wired kind of differently, but let me just tell you this from my perspective. I've spent a lot of time listening to Scripture in the the 90-day sprint, and there's something incredibly powerful about listening to someone else describe what Jesus went through on the cross. Um, in a, in a way I can't really describe. When I when I've just read it with my eyes, it had a much better, much bigger impact. To listen to what was done to Jesus, um, you need to read firsthand about the impact of the resurrection, about how it impacted his friends, his family, those people who were closest to him. Without the resurrection, without the resurrection, don't miss this. Christianity is just another philosophy. It's, not, it's just another worldview. And frankly, without the resurrection, it's a weak worldview. It's, it's not a powerful one. It's, it's a weak one. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death is simply the death of a great teacher. It's a, it's, a, a, it's a death of martyrdom without the resurrection. Somebody who was a great guy that was killed, just like lots of others in history. The resurrection is why we celebrate Easter. It's it's why, man, it's it's why there's so much um, fuss, so much attention on that one morning where we together say, He's risen. He's risen indeed, Jesus is alive. That's why it's so important to take advantage of this season with people that you work with, with, with your neighbors, whatever, to talk about what they're doing for Easter and to, and to have a conversation about the resurrection and its, its place in that celebration. Um, <clears throat> last night as I was, as I was praying about, uh, about today's talk, it, it occurred to me, um, my, um, the, my, my talk this morning, is it really is a persuasive speech. My whole intent is designed to encourage you, to challenge you, to persuade you to read the Gospels. Because I know for some of you, it may be the first time. Um, Read the Gospels, because Jesus is the central figure in human history. Let me give you three reasons why I think you need to read the Gospels. One is to be intellectually honest. Um, Understand that you can't Discount Jesus. I I know that there are people here today that are are here because their family brings them. Maybe you're here because you've just always done it. And in your mind and in your heart, you think, "Eh, yeah, I know Jesus is there. I'm just not sure I buy it. You can't hold that opinion and be intellectually honest without first reading the Gospels. You've got to do that. But um, conversely, or alongside that, let me say this. I know that there are lots of people here who are followers of Jesus, who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Jesus that have never read the Gospels. And let me say this as kindly as I can. What are you doing? How can you pledge your life and your love to Jesus and never read about him firsthand? It doesn't make any sense to have a secondhand kind of relationship that's dependent upon news and interaction from someplace else. Dive, man! Dive into the Gospels and read them for yourself. To be intellectually honest, you can't have a relation. You, you can't fall in love with someone that some that you only know through somebody else talking about them. You've got to have that interaction. Secondly, I I think it's I think you need to read the Gospels to help you better understand the world. Uh, you've when you look at history, you look at what's happened with people. Our world is different. Because of Jesus, because of his crucifixion, because of his resurrection. Do you understand that, that Alcoholics Anonymous was started by followers of Jesus? The Twelve Steps. That all came from the followers of Jesus. That the YMCA was the young men's Christian Association, and it was designed to help people who were downtrodden, who were hurting. That salvation army, that prison ministry exists because of followers. Of Jesus, do you understand that the arts have been impacted? Um, there, there is no way to understand the arts, whether whether you're talking about painting or music or whatever. There is no way to understand art and art history without understanding Jesus and His impact on the world. There is no way to understand education without understanding who Jesus is, because when you look at the education, particularly in the United States. Universities were started to help train preachers for churches to expand the kingdom. Literacy is as high as it is in the United States because historically there were people that said, no, you've got to learn how to read so that you can read the Gospels, so that you can read about Jesus for yourself for the first time. Um, I, about a year ago... <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm looking through, uh, I'm looking at books and thinking, you know what? I've heard a lot about Genghis Khan and I've never read about Genghis Khan. Um, you know, was, I thought, uh, that, that'd be interesting. So I got this book that was like an 850 page book about the life of Genghis Khan. Read it last summer. Uh, it, it was interesting. Listen to this quote from Genghis Khan. The greatest happiness in life is to vanquish your enemies to chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see those dear to them bathed in tears, to clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters. That's a very distinctive worldview, right? And that's diametrically opposed to Jesus. How do you decide what your worldview is? You've got to go to the source to understand who Jesus is, And why he came. George Washington Carver was an inventor, an African American guy in our country's history that that created all kinds of stuff and that said that um, he could only effectively pursue and perform science because of his faith in Jesus. You need to read the Gospels to understand um, how how history has changed because of Jesus. Um, So many profound things that filter into our language came out of the mouth of Jesus. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's Jesus. Um, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That's Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for a friend. That's Jesus. With God, all things are possible. That's Jesus. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's Jesus. And you've got to, got to read the Gospels. Why else? Um, to personally witness the heart of God. Understand that when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus demonstrate the heart of God, the God of the universe. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. That's He came to show us what God looks like who God is. Jesus came to demonstrate God's compassion for the powerless and the poor. Jesus came to help us understand and help us see God's um, zero tolerance for people who play with religion, that kind of dabble their toes in a, in a relationship with God. Jesus wouldn't have any of it, people who had the form and no substance. And finally, I, I, I think... He demonstrates for us, when we, when we read about Jesus, we understand what it's like to have an intimate relationship with God. When we read the Gospels, it, it shows us what that looks like when we look at Jesus and his relationship with God. Ultimately, you've got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. I want, to, I want to encourage you to do that informed, man, to read. This week, maybe if you've never read before, let me just encourage you to start with the book of Mark. 16 chapters, I, I said, lots of action, lots of activity. You can read through the book of Mark really easily, quickly, less than an hour, I think. I, yeah, probably so. Um, <clears throat> choose a gospel and start to read through that process. Take up that challenge. Maybe after you read Mark, read the book of John to get that big picture perspective, the heart of, of uh, probably the person on earth that Jesus um, was closest to, the disciple that Jesus loved. Maybe maybe you take up the challenge and you're not doing the whole 90 days thing, but maybe maybe try and read through all of the gospels this week or in the next 10 days or something like that to begin to experience and understand who God is in a new way. Understand that, that there is no christianity without jesus i know that sounds kind of crazy but without jesus if you believe that jesus was a fictional character you know that he didn't really live he wasn't a real person you can there there is no christianity and and that 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 perspective um, begs lots of questions about how other historians and non-biblical authors have referenced jesus you can say that Jesus was a, 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 a real man, but that his whole life was kind of a conspiracy and a cover-up if, if, you, if, you, uh, if you take Jesus out of Christianity. But there's lots of problems with that too because the crucifixion and the resurrection challenge that very directly. You can't say, you can't say that Jesus was a good teacher and not the Messiah. Because if Jesus said about himself things that weren't true, he can't be a good teacher. If Jesus deceived people rather than doing true miracles, he can't be a good teacher. Ultimately, the question is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Jesus in his ministry took the disciples at one point out of the Sea of Galilee in the summertime when it was hot, and he took them into northern Israel to a place called Caesarea Philippi where there was this huge spring, and, uh, and it, was a, it was really kind of a pretty refreshing place. And in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples that Matthew records in Matthew 16. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. It's a question that we all have to face. Who do we say Jesus is? And let me just encourage you, the best way to answer that question, the most informed way to answer that question is by reading through those firsthand accounts, those biographies of his life before you make your decision. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you communicate with us and to us. Lord, I thank you for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and their desire for us even 2,000 years later to be able to read firsthand about Jesus, what he did, what he said, how he interacted with people. God, I thank you for the people through these last 2,000 years that that have done incredible things to preserve their writings so that we could know that what we read today is true and accurate. God, more than anything, I pray for us as a church. I pray for each person who's here that we would face that question square about who we believe Jesus is and that we would answer that based on what your word says and God, that that answer would transform our lives, that we would live consistent with what we believe. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.